Let's get to it. We're excited here today. We've got Professor Eric Goldman with us who wrote a scathing blog post about the CCPA and the CPRA. Um, it, it goes in a very dystopian direction. The theme is Blade Runner. <laughs> I, you know, I tried to make it positive at the end, but you know, it's a very, uh, it's a very, uh, really interesting conversation. So, uh, I think people. Yeah. Yeah, man. And like Professor Goldman gets it. I really think so, man. Like his articles, you know, speak for themselves, but like, you know, I'm interested to talk to him about like the sideshow that is how CCPA and CPRA came to be and like what his ideas are and the implications of that. Um, and just kind of get a general sense of if there's a, if there's, you know, if there's a better way to do this or if the way we're going about privacy regulation in the United States um, right now uh, is ultimately good or bad. I, I know these are like good and evil and we always kind of fall into these traps in our, in our podcast, but spoiler, what else is there spoiler, spoiler alert is he doesn't think it's good. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also, you know, but the thing is like, I have no doubt he's going to be able to provide, you know, a lot of meat and potatoes substance about why he's reached that yeah. point of view. I, you know, he's not an uncareful person. So I'm, no. I'm excited to tell him. Great conversation. So, all right, here it is. All it's, right, here, here we are with Professor Eric Goldman, uh, professor at Santa Clara University School of Law, former GC, private practice lawyer, uh, outspoken lover of Blade Runner. Uh, so we picked Blade Runner as the, uh, the theme for the episode, uh, and my background is the Tyrell Corporation. Um, at your encouragement, Eric, I rewatched it. So I did. I rewatched it. I, I enjoyed it. We can talk about the dystopian privacy world that we're living in now. And uh, but one of the things that stood out to me, and it doesn't have much to do with privacy, but I do want your take on it, was the excessive eye gouging death of the leader of the corporation at the end i had <laughs> forgotten about that part and it is it has not it scarred me totally scarred i don't know me. how you could possibly forget it honestly uh, <laughs> it's it's a seminal moment in that movie that i had completely forgotten about but it's there it, it's there i think it's a metaphor about uh not only speaking truth to power but taking back your identity from those who gave it to you or those who you know uh, were your progenitors though so i think there might be some kind of um uh, oedipus complex type thing going on there i'm not really sure it's it's a pretty heavy scene it's a heavy That's scene it. it's, a, it's a layered movie for sure with a lot going on and um you know, we could start with us administering a test to you to determine if you're a robot or not. But, uh, no, I mean, yeah. remember that. Don't ask the question about my mother, though. Remember that. That's right. Well. That's right. Adrian, do you have any intro words? I don't have intro words other than when I see the Tyrell Core background, I just think of ad tech. <laughs> that's, that's all that comes to mind to me is just ad tech but so you've called Pedro, you've called ad tech the kanye west of data privacy so nice. now it's also the tyrell corporation so like, that's <laughs> yeah. a lot of things it's a lot of things to a lot of people i will say every I time i see that background on... uh, i just think of the vangelis soundtrack which i'm hoping you'll get a few snippets into this video um just that synthesizer heavy thing going on <laughs> we need, we need a lot of synthesizer music playing in the intro for this one, so the production guys make a note of this. Shout out to the the Alice content guy, Hans, <laughs> who's so good. Uh, shout out to synthesizer music here. 
because um, that, <laughs> that is running through Blade Runner for sure. Um, all right, well, let's get started. So can you, Eric, Eric, can you just give us a little bit of background, you know, on you, how you got into this, this game, as we call it, what, you know, and, and how you, um, how, uh, and we'll start there and then we'll, we'll build on that. Yeah, sure. So I'm Eric Goldman. I'm a professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law. And I describe myself as an old line internet law expert. Um, you can say internet law professor. I started teaching in 1996, internet law lawyer. Uh, I would started practicing internet law in 1994. Um, and really I cut my teeth on thinking about internet law um, in the mid 1990s during what we sometimes call the height of internet exceptionalism, where we were excited about the unique, special and different properties of the internet. Um, and how technology might uh, positively shape our lives. So there's still a few of us around from those days, but we're kind of like the, uh, uh, the Jedi uh, at the beginning of A New Hope. Um, there's just not many of us left. Um, we're still optimistic about <laughs> the future of technology. I'm sorry, I'm mixing up metaphors between the Star Wars canon and Blade Runner canon. I, I probably should have thought of some Blade Runner metaphor there. Oh, we, we just did an Empire Strikes Back episode, so you're, yeah. you're, you're right in line here. Uh, there's a lot of good and evil going on in, in a lot of these discussions, so. Well, I think you said you were limited to the 80s and A New Hope is pre-80s, so I think it's actually yeah, a good for you. Yeah, we, we picked Empire for that reason, just, just eking itself into the 80s. Um, um, uh, for sure. Um, so what was the, what was it like, I guess, let's start just really quick. Like, so what was it like when you were doing that work in private practice with clients and counseling clients? And was there any notion uh, around data privacy when you, when you started doing that? And, and how did it, what was the genesis for you when you were, you know, doing that counseling clients? So I uh, started practicing in the Silicon Valley in 1994 with the intent of becoming an internet lawyer. Uh, so my career uh, at the early stages really did track the dot-com boom of the 1990s. Um, and it was a crazy time um, because uh, every uh, um, venture capitalist was pouring tons of money into startups, many of whom really didn't have a clear vision of what they wanted to do or where they wanted to go. Um, but they were flushed with cash. Um, and so I did some of the strangest, craziest, last, least rational, clearly uneconomic deals you could imagine um, between uh, these internet companies that had more money than cents. Um, so in that crazy time, uh, there was a lot of experimentation about, um, uh, about ways to slice and dice uh, services on the internet. And there was zero question about privacy in any of that. It simply didn't come up. Um, people uh, took the kind of the journalistic model to, uh, to data privacy. If I get the data, I can do whatever I want with it. Um, all I gotta do is get it. Now that led to some pushback with things like the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act in 1998, where Congress said, this is just mania. Uh, you know, these companies are feasting on kids. We can't allow that. Um, but before uh, laws like that uh, took, uh, came into effect, really there wasn't a lot of privacy law to worry about. And I actually had a one pager that I would provide to client, uh, clients. I called it my, the Grandma Goldstein's uh, recipe for online privacy. And I did that in honor of my grandma who was uh, always fans herself as the world's best chef. Um, and so it was like, here's how to cook up all the things you need to think about with respect to privacy. 
and that literally fit on one page. Um, and most of it was uh, not statutory driven. It was, hey, here's some, some procedural or technical questions that you ought to be considering, not necessarily legal ones. Um, so when you hear about discussions of the internet in the 1990s being a wild west, I don't really like that metaphor, but, but there's some truth to it uh, when it came to privacy at least. Really, there were no rules. Companies were doing whatever they possibly could as long as they got their hands on the data. Do you fancy that you were one of the first people sort of signaling fairness and signaling that as a um, notional behavior to be you know, applying to your business practices to your clients back then? Uh, certainly, I was n not uh, unique in uh, the guidance I was providing to clients on topics like this. In fact, I probably wasn't even pushing back as hard as others were at the time. So I don't think I would be the right way to position it. Um, uh, a lot of what I did was simply say, guys, what are you trying to accomplish? Um, you know, show me how there's even an economic use case here. Um, and someday I would love it if we went back into the dustbins of the 1990s history and found all the really bizarre but fascinating ways that companies were trying to develop new products or services um, that had never been tried before. I think about some of like the reverse buying sites. I don't know if you remember those where um, the idea was to aggregate enough buyers to, to force manufacturers to get a quantity discount. It was like completely flipping over the entire supply curve. Um, stuff like that, really fascinating novel stuff. Um, didn't work at the time, maybe it will work now, but boy, um, there was all that kind of experimentation. How can we remix everything that we're currently doing? Let me ask, uh, let me ask you this. So you said something super interesting about um, uh, like the history of privacy law and how it was really unregulated is I guess what I took from, from from your point in the early 90s there in the mid to early 90s there's just not a lot of laws on the books for you to account for and that you could put your privacy guidance on on a one page grandma's one pager let's fast forward you know 30 years or whatever to i'm gonna skip a lot here but to ccpa cpra and this uh kind of privacy regulation by i don't even know what to call it you know by referendum what do you think led to going from nothing to really like citizen driven, activist driven regulation in California at least. And do you think that's good or bad having citizens kind of lead, uh, the, at least in the United States, um, lead the way in how we're gonna think about privacy regulation? The leading question. Yeah, um, so there are two different issues uh, that I wanna separate there. Uh, the first issue is, um, how do we feel about uh, uh, citizen-driven democracy in general? Um, the idea that anyone with enough money can put something onto the ballot and, uh, uh, and uh, get um, uh, their peers to vote on it. And I love that model in theory, but I don't love it in practice. Um, I think what we see in California, and I know in other states as well, we see a lot of rent seeking um, where companies use that uh, open ballot to try to advance their own economic interests. Um, and we also see things that really are just too complicated for voters to, um, uh, to appreciate uh, being uh, put to the voters. So voters just don't know what to do. And, um, when you see these uh, ballot guides um, um, that people write about for each other, you know, hey, how should I vote on, on, on 16? Um, you'll see a lot of times people write just like question marks. Maybe I'm a yes, I'm not really sure. 
it's just too much for any individual voter, even ones who are willing to educate themselves to really um, decide. That's why representative democracy has its value, that we put the hand, uh, the power in the hands of people who will act as representatives of their constituents, but will develop the expertise in order to understand how to do it better than we as voters kind of getting an up or down, yes or no, those are the only two options on the table uh, approach. So I generally oppose the overall open ballot process. I don't think that's the best way for us to engage in democracy. The privacy approach, uh, approaches in California, taking advantage of the open um, uh, ballot, I think exemplifies some of the pro problems of the open ballot. And in particular, um, you called it activist driven. And I think that's an okay way of describing it, but really it's one dude who had millions of dollars to throw at this issue. Um, and to the idea that one dude with millions of dollars can, can try to dictate the um, course of something so significant as consumer privacy in a state with 40 million people, the fifth largest economy in the world. To me, that's what my grandma Goldstein would have said, Meshugana. Um, it's crazy. That's not the right approach. Um, and so, um, uh, so, you know, that part, I think, really bothers me. And the other thing is simply, um, even if we were saying we want voters to have their say on privacy, a 52-page statute that is just impenetrable by even the most sophisticated readers is really not the right question to ask voters. There's no way to summarize it or synthesize it in a way that voters can even understand what they're being asked to vote yes or no. That's the only two options that voters are being given. Um, and for something as complicated as 52 pages, that's just, it's too much. It's not really, it doesn't really then tell us what voters truly want because we don't believe that they actually understand what they're gonna vote on. Yeah, and then so I'm just going to probe a little further. I couldn't agree more with basically everything you just said. Um, and I look at like CPRA, for example, and if I were asked a yes or no up or down vote on the entire uh, proposal as a privacy expert or so-called privacy expert, I still don't understand how, how it works or what, what the implications of some of the language in the proposal are. And to your point, I, I don't know how, how a voter could make a, a, a meaningful decision about, you know, CPRA uh, uh, on their own. What about what happened with CCPA, where uh, uh, Alistair McTaggart, the activist slash dude who, who proposed CCPA, essentially negotiated with the legislator, used the proposal as a negotiation to get the legislator to act, albeit hastily, and enact the law themselves, um, versus allow the CCPA to have gone to referendum. Do you think that is a maybe, I don't know, middle ground between this idea of direct citizen driven democracy versus legislative democracy? Is that something you think is workable as a compromise or to make these proposals and then negotiate before the ballot to try to get something done by the legislator? Or is that also problematic? I mean, at large and in the context of privacy, yeah. It, it's one of those ends justifies the means questions. There are some people who believe as long as we get to a good end, I don't really care how we got there. And then there are other people who say, no, the means really matter. And the process by which we develop our law and um, uh, uh, tell, you know, the legislature tells its constituents, we were advocating for your behalf, on your behalf, we were protecting your interests as your representative. Um, makes a difference. And so if the legislature is advocating that role because they basically have a metaphorical gun to their head, you must do this or you're forever sidelined in your ability to do anything to advance your client's interest, uh, your, your constituents' interest. If you have that kind of metaphorical gun to the head, I, I think that breeds disrespect for the law. So 
it depends totally on where you stand on it. You might be an ends justifying the means kind of guy, in which case, that's great. Um, you got what you wanted. Um, but if you're not, if you, the process matters to you, the process by which we develop our laws and that we want it to have integrity as part of us trusting it, um, I don't think that the, the, the whole uh, uh, deal that was struck between McTaggart and the legislature was, um, uh, will give you comfort. Two other things I just want to mention. One, um, imagine that that same deal was struck, but on other topics where you would view the ends as hostile. Um, and so you can just understand how that could be, that template could be weaponized by anyone who's got enough money to say, I'm going to buy my ability to put a metaphorical gun to the legislature's heads and then offer them a deal. But it's not really a deal. It's, it's a deal under coercion. Um, you could imagine thousands of different ways that that same process could be weaponized to, for ends that you would consider to be illegitimate. The other thing I'll say is that uh, McTaggart, God bless him, he uh, then changed the deal. He did the, like, we're back to the, uh, we're back to the Star Wars canon, right? He said, pray I don't alter it further. And then they altered, then he decided to alter the deal further. So he literally said, legislature, I'll let you do your thing. And before the legislature's actions had taken effect, he had already decided that he didn't like that deal and decided to alter it further. We really should have done a Star Wars canon. I, I, I'm so sorry. I wish I could come well, up with a better Blade Runner example, but uh, <laughs> oh boy, we got we got well, Darth Vader here now. Let's talk I don't a little think bit about. I would appreciate being analogized to Darth Vader either, but you know, I'm sorry. No, well, I feel like some of that is deserved. So it's hard. Fine. He's, hard <laughs> he's hard to come up with an analogy for because he doesn't fit the canon really. Because it, the other thing you you have to mention is how preposterous it is for someone who's a real estate developer to be leading this effort. Like someone who has never worked in a technology company or, or dealt with the internet, you know, held up comple completely, you know, sort of compared against the way you laid out starting your career so many years ago, steeped in this stuff. It's just, it's preposterous. Look, uh, you yeah, know, I think it, I think I, it I undermines expertise a little bit. Yeah, I respect right. anyone who, who is so passionate about their views that they're willing to, to actually invest their time and money. You know, it's easy for someone to say, ah, that should be fixed. But to his credit, he's actually done something about that. What I don't appreciate is that he's treated as a bona fide expert on this topic simply by virtue of having bought the leverage that he got over the legislature. And I think over and over he's proven that the way he explains things um, doesn't always track reality. And that then uh, really muddies the water for everybody. I think that's fair. So, you know, I think we've discussed the tactics and their limitations to get to where we are now with, with CPRA coming on the ballot here in a few weeks. Um, you've been critical of some of the substantive components of CPRA, uh, aside from how we got to this place and how we got to this point in the first place. Um, you know, give us like a three minute primer on what's, what you think is wrong with CPRA. Um, in order to understand it, you first have to understand that the CPRA clones and revises the CCPA, the existing law that was the product of this metaphorical gun to the legislature's head. And I think that the CP CCPA, sorry, the CCPA um, has tons of problems with it. It's, at its actually at its architectural core, what it does is it says every company must build this industrial grade infrastructure to protect the uh, citizens' privacy rights and give them some control over that. 
um, where very few consumers will actually take advantage of that right. So it's, it, it creates what I consider to be a lot of deadweight losses that we're, we're building all this infrastructure that very few will use. And so we all pay for that. Somebody pay, is paying for all those investments. Um, and the, the net return we're getting as a society or as an individual consumer in that society is really pretty poor. So I think the basic deal of the CCPA is not a good one for society. And there were some studies that showed how expensive the CCPA compliance was. Um, and so that just gives us an idea, you know, someone's paying for all this. Are we getting good return? Now, the CPRA then does a bunch of things to revise uh, the CCPA. And I want to highlight two, one procedural and one substantive. The procedural issue is that it makes it difficult for the legislatures to ever amend the CPRA or in a sense then to ever amend the CCPA again. That's why when uh, McTaggart did his Darth Vader deal, um, he, uh, he basically said, okay, legislature, I'm going to give you the power to amend the CCPA over time. Um, and then he comes back and says, actually, I don't like what you're doing. So I'm going to take that power away. I'm going to make it harder for you to ever amend and consumer privacy law again. And so it, whatever problems are in the CPRA, when you read those 52 pages and say like, well, that doesn't work. I know that's not gonna work, but at least the legislature could fix it. Well, actually the legislature probably can't and probably won't. And so what you see in those 52 pages is probably what you're gonna see for the rest of your lives. And that's probably not really the right solution for the rest of our um, uh, future. The substantive objection I have is who's gonna enforce the law? Um, right now, the C CPA is primarily enforced by the California Department of Justice. Um, and we could talk about the limitations they have in enforcement. They have some. I don't think they're the ideal uh, solution. But the C CPRA will create a new enforcement agency um, that exists solely to enforce the California privacy laws. And that new agency is almost certainly going to become uh, a... Uh, a a, a, a skewed normative government function. It's not going to view its job as balancing all interest. It's going to view its job as cracking skulls on privacy. Um, it's literally built into the, the organization's charter. And so I fear that we're going to unleash a new police on the beat who's not there to try and actually uh, uphold um, a good outcomes for constituents. Their job will be to find and stamp out privacy violations, whether or not that's actually really a good use of anyone's time or money. Is that because, like, so what are the reasons driving that necessarily? Because they'll just be, you know, requiring funding to do it. They'll be looking for headline enforcement actions. Like, so what are some of the, the what's like kind of what's behind that? So there's two reasons why uh, you would say that. Uh, first is because it's a specialized agency. Um, think about uh, something like the Consumer Protection uh, Bureau uh, that was created. Um, you don't go and work for the Consumer Protection Bureau if you're anti-consumer protection. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right, the, the, the mission is in the uh, organization's identity and that would be the case here. The only reason why people will, will work at this entity, the only reason why this entity will uh, exist is because it's going, it's designed to be the privacy cops. Um, the other reason why um, is because it's literally in the charter. It says that, that uh, privacy is a fundamental human right. And that's what uh, acts as the um, organization's 
um, uh, a normative agenda. It's baked in there. It doesn't say, you know what, privacy is a balance between a lot of competing interests and we want privacy, but we need to also respect that uh, too much privacy can actually create other problems. Um, it, you could imagine writing a different charter. The charter is privacy is fundamental human right. You need to go and treat uh, every action in the organization as if you're upholding that concern. Let me ask you this. So uh, there's a big delay between enactment and implementation on CPRA. It's a couple of years, right? I'm sorry. I just want to clarify. When you say big yeah. delay, there's about two years, um, mm -hmm. which is a, a non-trivial delay, but two years to repurpose everything that people have already done um, and comply with law is actually really short. And the number of things that need to be solved by regulations that are going to be drafted over time is actually not feasible to do in two years. And so I just want to be clear, two years sounds like a long time, but in context, actually, that's moving really quickly. I think to, yeah, to, no, to, I, to, to, to I liked your description in your blog post. Those two years are the period where people like Pedro and I have to tell our companies to eat shit and do it over again. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so I think you'll appreciate this question. Are those two years meaningful for implementation? I think you already answered the question and you don't think it's enough. So then I have to believe they know this. McTaggart and his people understand that two years Does is he not care? enough. Do they care? That's where I'm going. Is this about giving the federal government a long time to implement a national policy that essentially might preempt CPRA and he being the catalyst for uh, a national privacy law? Or do you think it's just they didn't care and, and they're just steamrolling California? It's a, it's a great question um, because uh, that two-year period um, is uh, going to give a window of time for the, for the um, US Congress to actually uh, 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 stop the madness in California, to put an end to this uh, Metagard deciding California law uh, through ballot initiatives, um, which we, there's no reason to believe we're at the end of it. We could be, you know, there could be plenty more coming. Um, who knows? Um, so, um, and I'm sorry, just in terms of implementation, I want to make clear. So you can't really implement the law till all the rules are, are drafted and the rule drafting will take likely two years or more so companies won't have two full years with the law settled to actually implement. They will have two years to watch the California um, rulemakers develop rules, and then they'll have maybe months or weeks or less to actually implement them. Um, so I just want to be clear about why the two years is actually, it, it isn't two years um, in, for the businesses to actually do the work. That's such um, a great point, Eric. Like the, the delay on the CCPA regulations is, is, is just point in fact exactly how that played out. They, they didn't finish out. the regulations until after the, they had the enforcement right. Yeah. They literally missed their deadline. And I will add, if you haven't seen it, um, they're starting up a new uh, rulemaking process uh, this week because the final regulations uh, two months later are still not complete. I was up last night until 10 o'clock on the phone with my outside counsel talking about do not sell, right? And so this is two more years of this and more and more and more and more and more of it. It's a great point. I, I can't reiterate that point you just made enough. It, it's for practitioners. It's It's like it's critical. Your lawyers are loving it though. You know, they yeah. are sending you those bills and they're not discounting them a penny. Exactly. Uh, well, we yeah. mine do. 
Well then, keep them. They're gold. <laughs> keep them. Andy, I need a referral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but can we go back to the question about will the federal government preempt this? Um, yes, let's yes, assume, yes. quote, the best case scenario. The best case scenario is a federal preemption. Now, there's no guarantee that the federal law will actually preempt. That's one of the reasons why the uh, any deal has been held up, because there's a lot of people in Congress who think we should just pass more law, not preemptive law. Um, so if that's the case, then we have Nightmare. a California law sitting out there and a non-preemptive federal law to worry about as well. In my mind, that's actually one of the worst outcomes we could get to. Nightmare. Um, so, but let's assume that, that there is a preemptive uh, federal law. What it means is all those two years, all that work that the, the, the regulators are doing, all the work that the businesses are doing to comply with it, that all just gets tossed into the scrap heap. Just like all the work that was done for the CCPA will get tossed in the scrap heap because people have to redo it for the CPRA. I'm sorry, not all the work. I apologize for overstating that. But some of that work has to get redone. And so there's, all, there's, there's a, a non-trivial chunk of work that just gets tossed. Um, and you know, again, you, it all depends on how you of the ends justify the means. If you say, you know what, this is all in service of us getting to greater privacy rights that we, we deserve is because privacy is a fundamental human right. And so if there's some cost along the way, no big deal. Okay, I understand that, that view. That's not how I view it. I view it as this is a terrible process. This is not the way to make law. And certainly the worst way to make law is to let one guy from real estate development <laughs> with millions of dollars to basically do the metaphorical gun now to Congress's head. That would exactly. be a really terrible outcome. Also, it also, to underscore your point, I mean, many of the companies you know, from, from honestly smaller to bigger companies are also contending with the GDPR in a lot of cases, right? So you've got an additional similar set of requirements that's not exactly the same uh, to, to contend with, right? So Eric, your point about throwing out some of the work you've done, we're all already looking at trying to harmonize a data protection program for, for companies, big and small, really, if you're, if you're playing in Europe. And so it just adds yet another complexity and yet another dimension when you also think through the differences and, this, and, and the kind of non-trivial differences between the GDPR, the CCPA, some federal United States law, whatever that may be. Uh, and the and other states as a practice and, and other states. Remember that's coming. We we haven't seen it yet, and I'm a little surprised we haven't. But other states are going to pass comprehensive consumer privacy laws, and whatever they do, it's going to then uh, compound your misery. Oh, tears at least we'll have jobs. Tears in the rain. At least, <laughs> at least we'll have jobs. <laughs> we'll be busy. It's blood money. Oh, I don't know if you want the job that way. <laughs> It's exactly right. Uh, at my last company, one of our board members once said of a difficult period we were going through, this next period will be like crawling through glass. And yeah. I'm sorry, when, when will it not be like crawling through, gra crawling through glass? That, when, when do we get past the glass crawling stage? <laughs> this conversation is leading me in that direction that, it's, that it may be never. Um, not sure. You know what's, what, 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 what makes this kind of terrible for me is the, the substantive issues and, and thinking philosophically about people's privacy interests and how to balance those with business interests and governmental interests as we move into this data-driven age that we're already in. Um, it's so fascinating and interesting to me. And there's so many practitioners that are motivated by the, the, the merits of issues. And we have to spend 
at least in my view, more of our time on the circus component of privacy governance, which is everything uh, Professor Goldman's been talking about now, um, uh, which is how we're getting to regulation and, and how it's a little bit of a dog and pony show. Uh, and that's unfortunate because it really is a beautiful area of law that uh, is developing before our eyes. But unfortunately, a lot of the development is being driven by what I consider belligerent action, right? And it's not just in the United States. I mean, if you look at what happened with LGPD in Brazil, it's kind of a similar hostage situation mess. Um, uh, it's just, I don't know if you guys have a take on that, but it, it's, it, it, it's just bittersweet to me that we're busy, but we're busy with the wrong things. Yeah, we're going through a transitional period where we're going from the Wild West era, like I described in the 1990s, to a very um, uh, uh, fully developed set of privacy laws, um, not only by industry or across industries, but across countries and um, uh, uh, globally as well. Um, and that transition period is inevitably going to be rocky and it's going to be painful. And as the old joke goes about legislation, uh, you don't want to be uh, watching the sausage getting made. But we don't have a choice. We're literally getting to see all the uh, procedural defects exposed to us at each and every stage. Um, and it's awful. It's terrible. And that's, again, if you think that the ends justify the means, you're like, I don't really care. Go ahead and make that sausage. It tastes great. And uh, if you're a process person, and many privacy practitioners are, they should be horrified. And many of them are horrified that this is not the right way to get to that end goal. Do we, let's end on a positive note if we can. Like, are there, are there- Are we gonna, get, are we gonna gouge each other's eyes out? Uh, that, seem, that seems like the, the, maybe where this ends, but um, <laughs> you know, Pedro, you, you're talking a lot about how some of your, you know, your viewpoint on some of these things is it doesn't, they don't actually help consumers um, create uh, enhanced privacy rights. Um, but what do we feel like, are there benefits or are, are we feeling over time, you know, consumers have gotten, obviously transparency is sort of one thing that we can talk about, but, but do, do we feel this is moving in the, in the right direction generally, notionally, or, or are we just gonna continue kind of struggling? So I feel awkward because you were trying to get me to say something positive and I'm about to just rip out some more venom. So I just want to warn you what's about to come. Um, and if you I want to steer me in a different direction, we could do that now. No, 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 let's, just... go there, let's go there. Let's go there. Okay, it. so go ahead and put your asbestos earmuffs on. Look, here's the thing that really blows my mind. Um, I understand consumers' concerns about companies' management of their private information. Um, there's definitely reasons to be asking questions and be concerned about that. But what frustrates me to no end is that while we're spending so much energy trying to fight against the, the tech titans, we're not spending that same energy or more against fighting against the real threats to our well-being, to our happiness, and to our future um, uh, 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 citizenship. And that's the government. So we're not talking about how the government is misusing its citizens' data for improper purposes. And that, to me, is really where 
if you were to say how we should prioritize privacy concerns, that's number one, number two, number three, number one through 100. And then after we get through all of that, let's talk about whether or not Google and Facebook are engaging in, in shenanigans. Um, so to me, I think the biggest crime here is that all that, that angst that's being directed towards uh, some little uh, a pizzeria in Westminster, California, that uh, uh, unfortunately trips over the CCPA requirements, we're going to make them do stuff that we're not making the government do. And the government's the one that's going to hurt us a lot more than the pizzeria in Westminster. I totally agree. And I talk a lot about the hypocrisy of GDPR and how it creates all these carve-outs for EU nation states to essentially conduct sweeping surveillance activities. And then at the same time, European regulators and data protection authorities are critical of the United States through the privacy shield invalidation and the safe harbor invalidation about surveillance practices when we know they're engaging in the same or, or even worse practices. So, you know, I call it the grand hypocrisy of data governance, of, uh, of privacy regulation, which is exactly what you hit on. Um, we're so focused on commercial misuse of data, personal data, that we're overlooking the sweeping, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say, let's just say misbehavior by governments as it relates to how they're collecting, how they're using all of this personal information about us. Um, and nobody is spending material, meaningful resources to unpack that dark black box, which I'm sure is full of horrors. I, I totally agree with you. A Super Amen. positive. And just, just reminder of things like no internet company has ever separated children and uh, parents at the border. Exactly. Um, that's the exactly. kind of power that the government has that no private company will ever have. And no internet company has ever tear-gassed peaceful protesters on public streets. They just don't have that power. The government is the one with the power. And every time we're not fighting that power, we're probably misdirecting our energy. Same page. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Good conversation. You're welcome. Thanks this for awesome. uh, yeah. saying this together. I don't think we've maximized fully the Blade Runner uh, motif, but we did get to some pretty <laughs> dystopian outcomes. And so I feel good exactly. that, yeah. that we were thematic. Yeah. Definitely Andy, I'm going to say that I'm going to say this right now. We're going to do a part two. We just have to. Okay. This is a great combo. <laughs> great conversation. Thank you very much. We'll, uh, we'll say goodbye and we'll, we'll do a little intro, but we really appreciate you coming on and being, uh, I mean, this is great conversation. Thank you so this much. This is great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you, Frank. Thanks.